Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast, city to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Thursday morning and happy Cinco de Mayo. And welcome in to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Very excited to be with you guys for the next two hours. As always, we go till 11 a.m. Eastern. Only on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We appreciate you watching, whether it's on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, or on Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, or at Ryan Hickey Show. And we're on YouTube, live at Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Look, I'll be honest with you, I'm playing a little hurt this morning. My neck is killing me. I can barely sit up straight. I hate to say it now that it makes me kind of sound like I'm getting very old, but I think taking the subway every day to work, living in New York City, going to and from work on the subway, I've been looking down at my phone, watching the new Ozark, which I'm still through episode one, so please, no spoilers, but watching the, I guess, second release of the final season of Ozark and I guess looking down for 30 minutes straight at a time has really put my neck uh, through the ringer. So playing a little hurt this morning, we'll try to power through for the next two hours here as we got a ton, a ton to get into. We are coming to you live from where else but the Big Italy Pizza Studios. Whether it's great heroes, great pizza, and phenomenal dinners, make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. There's no doubt in my mind after last night, the Phoenix Suns are winning the title this season. They were my pre, well, not pre, well they were my preseason pick coming into the season. Again, doubled down when they uh, got into the playoffs. And now, if you were a doubter, because there were some little bumpy road, little bumpy patches here in round number one against the Pelicans, there's no, no doubt Phoenix is winning the title this year. And the biggest reason for it, the main reason for it, was on display last night. In game number two against the Mavericks, their fourth quarter excellence. Like so many games, and especially in the NBA postseason, come down to the fourth quarter. You play close for three game, uh, for three quarters, and then who can make more shots? Who can get, whether it's that one stop on defense, make that one buck on offense, who can make the winning plays when these games are tight, when these teams are pretty much even in a season that's seen a lot of parity in the NBA? Who can make those plays that decide who wins and who loses? And there's no better team that makes more winning plays in the NBA this season than the Phoenix Suns. And there is no better fourth quarter player on the planet right now than Chris Paul. Like if you right now could say, have one person lead your offense in the fourth quarter of a tie game. I'm not taking Giannis. I'm not taking Luka. I'm not taking Jason Tatum. I'm not taking Donovan Mitchell, Trey Young. Like we can go down the list here of great players in the NBA. The player I am taking to lead my team in a close game in the fourth quarter is Chris Paul. This is a guy who's just six feet. He's 37 years old. But he is still able to take over a fourth quarter and impose his will better than anyone in the game right now. And that was on full display last night in game two. Luka Doncic, Jason Kidd, Mark Cuban, 
and the rest of the Mavericks organization got another front row seat to that mastery last night because Chris Paul was again on one in the fourth quarter and was unstoppable. Another game where it's coming down to the wire, right? Again, we talked about the playoffs being close. Every game is close. Going to the fourth quarter, the Mavericks credit, they're playing really well. They were answering a lot of Phoenix's runs. They were going on some runs of their own. It was 89-83. A six-point game. The Suns had the lead going to the fourth quarter. But, hey, six-point you know, deficit. Any team would sign up for that. You're right there in the game. But just as the, the Mavericks were entering the fourth quarter, only down by six, in the span of it, it felt like two minutes, that uh, deficit ballooned and the game was over. Because Chris Paul, as soon as that uh, scoreboard turned from the third quarter to the fourth quarter, completely took over the game and made sure there was no hope left for the Mavericks. Made sure there was no prayer that Luka Doncic was just going to go off and lead the Mavericks to stealing game number two. He took over the fourth quarter instantaneously. Chris Paul, who finished the fourth quarter, by the way, scoring 14 points alone in the fourth quarter, Going 6-7 from the field, so being very efficient, taking over, scoring tremendously. Also, either scored or assisted on the first 19 points of the fourth quarter. So again, six-point game, at home, playoffs, game number two. Close game. You have Luka Doncic, who's a better player. You have Devin Booker, who's a better player on your own team. And it was Chris Paul, yet again, as we have seen time and time and time again in the fourth quarter, taking over the game, and making sure there was no shot. The Mavericks were coming back in the fourth quarter, which again goes back to why I think right now there was no player you'd rather have in the fourth quarter on your team than Chris Paul. Right away, boom. 19 points he's either assisting on or scoring on himself. Finished 6-7 from the field, scored 14 points. He took over. But it wasn't just game two. It wasn't just a, a one-game anomaly where Chris Paul had a great fourth quarter, but that's not the norm. This is who he is. Now, through the postseason, now you take the first six games of the New Orleans series and the first two games here against Dallas, eight games. Chris Paul is averaging 10.2 points per game in the fourth quarter in the playoffs. You can't ask for a better performance than that. Playoff time, crunch time. Your, uh, your point guard, your point god, and Chris Paul is averaging 10.2 points per game and in those games combined is shooting 63.8% from the field. He's tremendous. He's clutch. He makes all the winning plays, not just on the offensive end, by the way. He's not just getting it done scoring. He's not just getting it done, you know, assisting and setting up his teammates for success. He's also doing so on the defensive end. We saw it last night. Scores a bucket, starts Garland uh, guarding Jalen Brunson full court, draws an offensive foul on Jalen Brunson, boom, right away, offensive turnover, Suns get the ball back, the momentum is on the Suns side, the crowd is going crazy. Chris Paul, for how annoying he is, right, with some of the some of the ways he draws fouls, takes fouls on defense, he makes winning, winning plays. And that's what you want from a player on your team in the fourth quarter of the playoffs. A winner. I know Chris Paul's never won a title, but he makes all the winning plays you need to make in the fourth quarter. And again, that's why right now, there's not a player I'd want on my team in the fourth quarter more than Chris Paul. Because it's not just him, by the way. 
it's not just him playing well and the rest of the team kind of dragging along. He's not carrying this Suns team by himself. The way he plays, especially in the fourth quarter, the confidence he exudes, mind you, in the fourth quarter, it rubs off on the rest of the team. Like, by far, I think this is a statement that is, is, is true, although it's ambiguous. Like, there's no true way to measure it. The Suns late in games, the Suns in fourth quarters, to me, are by far the most confident team in the NBA. There's no team that looks more comfortable in a close game. There's no team that looks more confident that they know they're going to win a close game more than the Suns. And that, again, starts with Chris Paul and his confidence, knowing he knows how to get to his spots, he knows how to uh, exploit the defense, and he knows how to make those winning plays and change momentum in the smallest ways possible. That swagger, almost, and that confidence he brings is infectious. It rubs off on everyone else, and the rest of the Suns team plays with that same confidence Chris Ball brings. Because you look at yesterday. Now, again, I know it's one game, and this is a little bit more of an anomaly. But yesterday in the fourth quarter, we talked about Chris Paul's domination. Well, the Suns as a team in the fourth quarter yesterday shot 84% from the field. Second highest shooting percentage in the fourth quarter in the last 25 postseasons. So again, at what was a close game, 89-83 going to the fourth uh, quarter of game number two, a big swing game. This Chris Paul not only took over, but everyone else in the Suns was making their shots, and they hit 84% of their shots. That's a team, whether it's Chris Paul, whether it's Devin Booker, whether it's Jay Crowder, DeAndre Ayton, Mikel Bridges, I can go down the list. That's a team that's not afraid of the moment. That's a team that, again, when a big moment presents itself, whether it's a big shot, whether it's a big defensive stand, they are confident and they know they are going to make the play. Like, I get sure, 84% is not sustainable and we're not going to see that again. Again, it's a reason why it's the second highest uh, field goal percentage in the fourth quarter of a playoff game in the last 25 years. That is an extremely rare number and that's an anomaly, yes. But the way the Suns play in the fourth quarter, it's not a fluke and it's not an accident. This is by far the best clutch team in the NBA. You look at what defines clutch moments. It's a game within five points with five minutes left in the game. The Suns have played in 42 of those games that have finished that close. You know what the Suns' record is? In 42 games, a very large sample size, over half of the games they have played have entered crunch time. The Suns are 33-9 and this season in crunch time. In clutch time. That's the best in the NBA. 33-9. and For over half of their games that end in uh, in close games. Right? That, that five minutes left in the game. The game was in five, uh, within five points. The Suns always know, hey, we got Chris Paul and we're going to win this game. 33-9. Best record in clutch time. They shoot the highest field goal percentage as a team in clutch time in the NBA. They are confident, they know they're going to make their shots, and that, that, that happens. This team, again, if you had any doubts, because I know the first series is a little rough, you had Devin Booker's hamstring injury, if you had any doubts about the Suns winning the title, yesterday should confirm, or at least put you back on the bandwagon, this team is winning the title. Because by the way, for all the praise we have just given Chris Paul last few minutes here, and he deserves it, it's not just him. The rest of the team, like we said, has stepped up and played equally well. Devin Booker, back now from his hamstring injury. This is his third game back, but really this is the first game where he looked like the Devin Booker of old. 
He's lethal. He's healthy. He hit 30, you know, scored 30 points yesterday. Very extremely efficient. 11 to 19. Going 5-8 from three. Made some huge threes in the fourth quarter that really buried the uh, the Mavericks and put that game away. And he is someone, too, that you watch Devin Booker play. He had so many tough shots, whether it's turnaround shots, whether it's contested threes, whether it's driving and, you know, going past a big down the lane. He makes so many tough shots from anywhere on the court that, again, just brings that extra confidence because teammates know, oh, book God, he's going to make the shot. Like, he's that spark plug that really takes this offense when Chris Paul's running it, and it's humming. But he makes this offense unstoppable. When you can hit a shot from anywhere, when it doesn't matter if there are two guys guarding you, hand in the face, or wide open three, you know he's taking it and you know he's making it. It takes this offense, which already is elite, which already is tough to guard in the fourth quarter when Chris Paul's running it, and it makes it unstoppable. But again, it's not just Chris Paul. It's not just Devin Booker. It is everyone throughout the team. They are by far the Suns, the deepest team in the NBA. And yesterday was the latest example of that. Because again, you can have two great players. We've seen teams, you know, have two great players and and win. But it's everyone contributing. This now was the eighth consecutive game for the Suns in the playoffs, where they have shot 50% or better as a team. Eight straight playoff games. That's not a fluke. Every single game this postseason, they have shot 50% or better from the field as a team. That is showing you Chris Paul's hitting shots, Devin Booker's hitting shots, but also Mikael Bridges, Jay Crowder, uh, Cam Johnson, Cam Payne. You're like, we can go down the list here. They get contributions one through 10. And they have the third string center in the game yesterday, Bismack Biombo. He's making plays. This is by far the deepest team in the NBA. They even set a franchise record for field goal percentage in the postseason yesterday, shooting 64% from the field as a team. They make their shots. They're confident. They make all the winning plays in the fourth quarter. So again, I know there was some consternation. There was some concern. Oh, look at the Warriors. Look how well they played against the Nuggets. Oh, look at the Celtics blowing out the Nets. Oh, the Bucks, led by Giannis, the best player in the NBA. There's reasons to pick different teams to win the finals this year. Yesterday should serve as an example and a reminder, more importantly. The Suns are winning the finals because they are the best fourth quarter team and they are led by the best player in the fourth quarter, Chris Paul. So if you jumped off the bandwagon, too late. Sorry. The train has left the station. Go jump onto the Boston bandwagon or the Milwaukee bandwagon or the Golden State bandwagon. The Phoenix Suns bandwagon has left the station. It is long gone and it's too late to get in. Yesterday was the latest and really the final reminder. The Suns are winning the final. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Number one, is Chris Paul the best fourth quarter player in the NBA? Is there a player right now you would rather have leading your team in the fourth quarter of a close game than Chris Paul? My answer is no. He is masterful. He knows how to exploit defenses. And he just makes winning plays, shooting, passing, defending. I'll take him my team any day. And is there any doubt in your mind the Suns are winning the title? Love to hear your thoughts. You can comment on Facebook, Worldwide Sports or Network. You could tweet us at Ryan Hickey Show, Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, or WWSRN underscore radio. And right on YouTube, we're there live. Just type in Worldwide Sports or Network on YouTube, and you can click on the live link and comment in there as well. Is Chris Paul the best player in the fourth quarter? We'll get your thoughts. And when we return, I want to stay in the Western Conference. Memphis Grizzlies, 
Golden State Warriors. Their series is tied 1-1. Should we be concerned about Golden State's offense? We'll discuss when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey here with you on the Worldwide Sports Run Eric on this Thursday morning. You head to my Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show or on Instagram as well, Ryan Hickey Show. I posted a poll question. I'm curious your thoughts here. Is Chris Paul the best fourth quarter player in the NBA right now? Is there a player you would rather have? Giannis, Jason Tatum, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Luka Doncic. Is there a player you'd rather have right now leading your team in the fourth quarter than Chris Paul? You can vote on that poll again on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show. If you're on Instagram, I'm there as well. Ryan Hickey Show, it's part of my story. So just click on that and you can vote yes or no. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. We'll circle back to that question here a little bit later on in the show as if uh, on whether uh, Chris Paul is the best fourth quarter player in the NBA right now. But I want to talk about it in second the West. Because I do think there should be concern about two teams right now in the playoffs. Sixers down 0-2. I think their series is over. We'll get to them in a second here. But the Warriors tied 1-1 with the Grizzlies. I picked the Grizzlies going into this series uh, to win in seven. And I feel really confident they're going to win. My concern at least with Golden State, and the reason why I was never kind of buying them against the Nuggets, is that the Warriors have one way to win, right? It's not rocket science. We know how the Warriors win game, uh, win games. It's by bludgeoning you to death on offense. Steph hitting threes. Clay hitting threes. You know, Draymond contributing here and there. Andrew Wiggins. Now Jordan Poole's emerged as a third splash brother, if you will. The, the thing they do the best and the way they win games and how they won three titles is by just outshooting you. Defense, they're sure they can make a stop or two. Rebounding, yeah, they can grab a few boards here and there. But they win games, they win titles when some of the historically greatest shooters and Steph and Clay are doing their thing. But here's the thing. Even though both Steph and Clay are now both healthy in the postseason for the first time in a few years, even though they're both are on the court, it's not 2017. This is not the Warriors from five years ago. This offense has been off. This offense has been off this season, and so far in these two games against the Grizzlies, it has not been pretty. And I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. So again, I picked the Grizzlies coming in, and even though they blew game number one and won game number two, I still feel really, really good about Memphis going into game number three Saturday night. we got a long way to go. Don't get me started on the schedule. But you look at this Grizzlies offense... Uh, this this Warriors offense, I don't think anything all of a sudden is magically changing right away. Because you look at it. Steph Curry, for his greatness and his standards, he's struggling this year. Klay Thompson, even though he returned in January, is still trying to work his way back after missing two full years with injuries. He is still trying to get his feet wet. He's still trying to get comfortable on the court. And even with Jordan Poole now really emerging as a go-to consistent scorer, For the Warriors to beat the Grizzlies, for the Warriors to have a chance against the Suns, they need Steph and Clay to be them old selves and to be their old selves really, really, really quick. And I don't think it's happening. 
I don't think it's happened. Because let's look at Steph Curry specifically first. Right? When you look at Steph and how he's played so far this season, and how he's carried that into the postseason, it's concerning that his three-point struggles have started in the regular season and have continued now in the postseason. He got off to that insane start to start the year. He broke the three-point record uh, for most three-pointers in a career. And really, since breaking that record, he struggled from three. Like, he was an MVP candidate the first month of the season and has been nowhere near that since. He shot 38% from three this year, which most players would sign up for in a heartbeat. That's Hall of Fame worthy right there. But for Steph Curry, that is the lowest uh, three-point field goal percentage in a full season in his career. 38% from three. He's never shot in a full season, Steph, below 41% from three. So he's three points or three percentage points lower in the regular season for his career uh, from three than he is in his career average. So the three balls not falling at the efficient clip that it normally does. And the concerning part is that his three point, we'll call them struggles because the bar is so high for Steph Curry. Those struggles have carried into the postseason. He shot 38% in the regular season. In the postseason so far through six games, he's shooting just 38.6% or seven games, excuse me. That's it. 38.6% from three for Steph Curry in the postseason. And you look so far in the two games he's played against the Grizzlies, he's not been very good. He's gone three of 11 from three and five of 12 from three. Steph Curry, three of 11, five of 12. Golden State for them to beat the Grizzlies. They need Steph to be his old self. They need to get him back to being that efficient three-point shooter that's deadly. And not only has he not been that, I don't think that's magically happening anytime soon because if you watch this series so far through the first two games, it's not like Steph Curry is being defended like Kevin Durant was in the first series against the Celtics where everything's contested. Steph Curry has gotten numerous good looks. He has gotten a ton of open shots from three and he's not making them. Like, I'm picking the Grizzlies and I'm still feeling confident in them, but through the first two games, it's not like the Grizzlies have played great defense. The Grizzlies have not played very well really on the defensive end so far through the first two games of the season. They've allowed, or through the first two games of, of this series. They've allowed a ton of offensive rebounds. They've given up a million second chance opportunities for these deadly shooters. But the thing is, Steph has not converted. Steph has gotten open looks. He has gotten, you know, windows where he can shoot threes. And normally, 2015, 2017, 2018, he's making them. This year, he's not. He has struggled for basically three quarters of a year from three, shooting 38%. And those struggles have still remained a constant in the postseason. And so with the way that the Grizzlies have defended Steph, or really, frankly, lack thereof at times, and he's still missing open shots, I don't think all of a sudden, you know, Steph's going to wake up tomorrow and start shooting the lights out. I get it's dangerous to doubt a player as great as Steph Curry. With so much uh, playoff experience, so much playoff success, you know, with the championship pedigree, I get what I'm doing is a dangerous game to play. I get it. But so far, through what I've seen, I don't think my eyes are lying to me. I am trusting what I'm seeing. Through the first two games, especially of this series against the Grizzlies, Steph has not been good, he's not been efficient, and I don't think that's changing because when you're getting open shots and still missing them, it's something mechanics-wise, something injury-wise, or something mental. One of the three. And I don't think just in the blink of an eye, 
He's going to go from this Steph Curry, which is you know a, a career low in three-point field goal percentage, to all of a sudden 2017, 2016 Steph Curry when he couldn't miss a three. I don't think we're seeing that change come overnight, which is why I don't think the Warriors are winning the series. They need Steph to be old Steph. Right now, he has not been. And without old Steph showing up, by the way, they could still get by if Klay Thompson, let's say, was picking up some of the slack. If his other splash brother was making the Grizzlies pay. But the reality is, too, with Steph struggling, Klay Thompson has been unable to shoulder the load. He has been just as inefficient. He has struggled just as mildly from three, if not worse, than what Steph has this year. Look at the first two games, again, in this series against the Grizzlies. Klay Thompson from the field has gone 5-19, 6-19. One of the all-time great shooters in NBA history has gone 2-12 from 3, 3-10 from 3. And similar to Steph, Clay is missing wide-open shots. I know he hit the big three in game number one late in the fourth quarter that eventually ended up being the difference. But Clay Thompson does not look as confident as he used to. And I think a lot of it has to do with him still working his way back from injury. I get he's been back uh, since January, so it's been basically four months, right, that he's been back in the NBA. But he's missed two full years. And we are still seeing that time missed uh, really kind of hurt Clay and trying to get his rhythm back and trying to get his full legs back. The confidence isn't fully there. And the perfect example of that is you go back to game one on Sunday. Up by one point after he hit the three, you're up by one. The Grizzlies foul after the, uh, Steph makes, to his credit, a great defensive play on John Morant. Klay Thompson able to uh, make this a one-point game to a three-point game with two uh, free throws. Misses both. One of the best free throw shooters on the Warriors. One of the best free throw shooters uh, in NBA history. Misses both free throws. That's confidence. Klay is lacking confidence right now. So similar to Steph, I don't think Klay is waking up tomorrow night or waking up, really, I should say Saturday morning and all of a sudden going to the Steph, uh, to the Clay Thompson of 2015 where he couldn't miss. Steph and Clay have struggled. They have missed open shots, and I don't think that's changing anytime soon. The Warriors are one missed layup away, or one made layup away, I should say, from being down 0-2 in this series. The Grizzlies have not played perfect. They've not played well at times. But they are finding ways to win, whether it's John Moran taking over, whether it's Jaron Jackson Jr. stepping up, whether it's being more physical on the uh, offensive and defensive end. The Warriors have, you know, opportunities to win this series. The Grizzlies aren't exactly playing perfect basketball. But if John Moran makes that lightning in game one, which he should have and told you after the game he should have made, they're down 0-2. And it's all because they need Stephen Clay to be old Stephen Clay, and they have not been. They're missing open shots. They're inefficient from three. I don't think it's changing. I'm standing by my pick of Grizzlies winning this series. I feel really confident about that. And you see so far through the first two games, there's absolute reason to be concerned if you're a Warriors fan, if you're a Warriors better, that they're not getting out of this second round. That what we kind of saw in a small sample size against the Nuggets, a depleted Nuggets team, where Steph was coming off the bench and, and playing tremendously, where Jordan Poole was unstoppable, where Klay Thompson was hitting three after three, that's not coming back anytime soon. The sample size is large enough in the, in the regular season where Steph has really struggled from three, and now we're seeing it yet again in the postseason. Those struggles have carried over. I don't think they're changing. The Grizzlies are winning this series. There should be real concern with Golden State's offense so far this postseason. On the flip side, Speaking of concern, 
I mean, I don't even know if, if you're a Sixers fan, if concern is the right word, because the series is over. The series is over. Even if Joel Embiid returns for game number three, which is looking very uncertain, and we'll get to that in one second, Philly doesn't have enough. Like, the two areas, for, I know Embiid is, is part of this, but the two areas right now that the Sixers can't do well, defend and hit a three. That's a death sentence in the playoffs. If you can't get a stop, you can't hit a three. You are not winning any playoff games. And this first, uh, these first two games so far against the Heat are the perfect example of that. Yesterday, in another loss, the Sixers as a team go just 8 of 30 from three. In the first two games combined, where they go 6 of 34 in game number one, 8 of 30 in game number two from three, they are now a combined 14 of 64 from three. For math whizzes out there, I'm sure you already figured out that percentage, but for most of us, that is 21.8% from three. You are not winning playoff series, let alone a game, when you are averaging 21% from three as a team. This team is way too inefficient from three. They don't have a lot of guys that can take and make them on a consistent basis. And now, also, couple that with the fact that they can't get any stops in the defensive end. Like, it's one thing when you can't make any threes, but then also they're giving the Heat open looks, and they and the Heat, to their credit, are making the threes. Game number two, perfect example. Sixers go 8 of 30 from three, can't hit, can't hit water from a boat. Heat, 14 to 29 from three. Get an open looks, make it. So the Sixers can't hit a three, can't stop the three. Can't shoot, can't defend. You're not winning any series when you can't shoot, can't defend. They're allowing them to get open shots. And even with Joel Embiid coming back, this defense is still very shaky and Philly. But now let's talk about Embiid because that's obviously the big question mark. That's obviously the biggest factor in the series. Look, I don't know how Joel Embiid is going to play on Friday. And if he does, I don't see how he's going to be effective at all. In case you missed it. So Chris Haynes, a tremendous sideline reporter for, for TNT, he was reporting yesterday that he was actually talking and texting with Joel Embiid. Chris Haynes said that Joel Embiid told him that for the first time since getting his orbital fracture and concussion, he was able to just use and look at his phone on Tuesday. So that the brightness on the phone was giving him issues over the weekend. So for the first time Tuesday, Joel Embiid was able to look at his phone. If you are kind of that, you know, if you're having that severe symptoms, where you can't even look at a cell phone, like you can't even look at your phone because the brightness is throwing you off, it's giving you headaches, it's hurting your eyes. Tuesday, how are you going to play in a game on Friday? And how are you going to be effective in a game on Friday? After the game, Doc Rivers uh, was asked for an update on, on Embiid. He said, he's, you know, they'll reevaluate him, but as of right now, he doesn't believe he's passed any tests yet. He has to go through concussion symptom tests. And again, if you listen to Chris Haynes' report, if you can barely and just start to look at your phone on Tuesday, it does not seem like if you were trying to get cleared for concussion that you are going to be cleared anytime soon. I don't know how he's going to play Friday. And if he does, how is he going to be effective? Dealing with an orbital fracture. I get he's played with that before a few years ago and he played with the mask. But more the concussion is the scary part. The lights are bothering him. How are you now going to go in an arena with 20,000 people? And by the way, in a make, with your season on the line, this is not game number one. This is not game three where you're up 2-0 and you can afford to lose. This is Joel Embiid coming on back, by the way, in game three with the season on the line. 
That's a lot to ask for. That's a lot to expect. I don't know how he's going to play on Friday, and I don't know how he's going to be effective. Even if he does suit up, how many minutes can he play? Doesn't seem like a lot, considering that he's still dealing with concussion-like symptoms. How effective can he be? Can he be the MVP like he was in the regular season? Tough to say. Does not. I don't see how that's going to be you know, possible. And if Joel Embiid's not playing at an MVP caliber, the Sixers don't have a prayer. I get, you know, you had, especially game two, Tyrese, Ma- uh, Tyrese Maxey had a great game. 34 points. He was the aggressor. He took over the game. Even with Tyrese Maxey playing a good game. Even with James Harden being, we'll say, better. I mean, he scored 20 points and, and took 15 shots. So at least he's being aggressive. At least he's starting to make some more shots. This Sixers team didn't have a chance. And the scary part of James Harden is that, sure, he scored 20 points. And sure, he took more shots than he has uh, in this postseason. In the second half, by the way, just four points. Just one of five from the field. He's gassed. He's winded. He's out of shape. That nightlife is starting to catch up to him. We are seeing James Harden pass his prime. So you have uh, uh, out of his prime, James Harden, uh, James Harden. You have Joel Embiid, who arguably was playing MVP-level basketball the entire season, still dealing with concussion-like symptoms, still not cleared. And according to Doc Rivers, at least up until yesterday, last night, still has not passed any tests. I don't see how he's going to be able to play tomorrow. And I don't see how he's going to be effective enough to lead the Sixers to victory. I think the Sixers are toast. This series is over. But I want to hear your thoughts. Whether it's on Philly, is there any chance the Sixers in your mind down 0-2 dig out of this hole? And for the Warriors, Steph has been struggling from three. Clay has been struggling from three. Am I overreacting? Should there be real concern with Steph and Clay's struggles from three? Or you have faith that they'll figure it out and you have faith that they'll get past the Grizzlies here in round number two. Love to hear your thoughts. Facebook Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, you could tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. Also check out our poll on Twitter. Is Chris Ball the best fourth quarter player in the NBA? Yes or no? Also on Instagram, Ryan Hickey Show. We're also live on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, free agency has, is basically over. The draft has come and gone. Two quarterbacks... By this point, we thought it would be off their teams. Jimmy G with the 49ers, Baker Mayfield with the Browns. Well, they're still there. Forget about what's best for Jimmy G and what's best for Baker Mayfield. I want to look at it from the team perspective. What should the Browns do with Baker? What should the 49ers do with Jimmy G? I have answers when we return. You'll listen to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey, the Ryan Hickey Show, here with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Speaking of bad, Chris Paul is a bad man. Fourth quarter time, he is a bad, bad, bad dude. Did not mean to fade the music out too, uh, too quickly. My apologies on that. Speaking of that, I am bad at fading out the music. But I do want to at least talk about Chris Paul here. At least guide you to, whether it's Twitter, Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, or Instagram, same thing, Ryan Hickey Show on Instagram. Do you think Chris Paul is the best fourth quarter player in the NBA? I put a poll there on Twitter and Instagram. Love to get your, your, your thoughts. Vote there, yes or no. We'll circle back to that poll in a little bit later on in the show. Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, Ryan Hickey Show on Instagram. Bad, bad, bad man, 
Chris Paul is as he guides the Suns to a Game 2 victory last night. But I do want to transition to the NFL here and discuss the future of two quarterbacks that no one thought would be on their respective teams by the time the offseason started as you sit here on Cinco de Mayo. Happy Cinco de Mayo, by the way. Hopefully there's a nice margarita frozen on the rocks, however you like it, a little tequila as well. Hopefully that's in your future at some point today. But no one thought, as we sit here on May 5th, Jimmy Garoppolo would still be a member of the 49ers. And no one thought, especially after the Browns acquired Deshaun Watson just about two months ago, no one thought Baker Mayfield would still be a member of the Browns. But here we are, both quarterbacks are still on the roster. So if you are the team, or forget about the player for a second, if you are the team, what the hell do you do? What the hell do you do, I should say? It's a tough situation. I have answers for both. If you're Cleveland, there's only one solution. Folks, it's time. Cut Baker Mayfield. It is time to move on. The hassle of trying to pawn him off to a team is not worth the headache of keeping him around, and it's not worth the headache for the very little little draft capital you're going to get back if a team does trade for Baker Mayfield. Like, so far, he's been fine, right? He's been quiet. He's been away from the team outside of doing one podcast and outside of kind of tweeting those uh, cryptic tweets right before the Browns landed Sean Watson, Baker Mayfield's, for the most part, not been a malcontent. He's been pretty quiet. But the longer he stays on the Browns, the longer his future's undecided, I think that's going to change. It's only going to cause more problems for Cleveland. Like, what if he starts doing more interviews? What if he starts now talking and tweeting and going to Instagram and kind of starting more drama? It only brings more negative attention to the Browns. Oh, sorry. So if you're Cleveland, time to just bite the bullet. Cut him. Cut your losses, move on, and focus on your future with Deshaun Watson. Like It's kind of almost like, I hate to use the relationship analogy because I feel like it's sometimes it's so overused, but that's really the, the best thing I could think of is because, look, the, ba- the Browns and Baker are having a divorce. But for the Browns' perspective, in the breakup, they found what is the perfect partner for them. They found the man or woman of their dreams in Deshaun Watson, who's a top-five quarterback. Off-the-field issues aside, he is a top-five quarterback on the field, a clear and consistent upgrade of what you have in Baker Mayfield. So the Browns got and basically hit the lottery at the quarterback position. So it shouldn't matter what your ex does, right? Don't don't be still following your ex on social media. Don't be monitoring what they're doing, who they're talking to, who they're seeing. Let them go. Cut them out of your life. It doesn't matter who they're flirting with. It doesn't matter who they're dating. You hit the, the home run. You got your dream girl, your dream guy. So it doesn't matter who your ex is dating because there's no one like that replacement in Deshaun Watson is way better than anything you had in your ex, which is now Baker Mayfield. So let, let Baker go where he wants to go. Cut him. Have him pick his destination. It doesn't matter. Even if, because I think the worst case scenario, if you're the Browns, is that Baker gets cut and he goes to the Steelers. Well, number one, I don't think it's going to happen after they draft Kenny Pickett. But let's just say he does. Let's say the Steelers say, screw it. We're going to have Mason Rudolph, Mitch Trubisky, Kenny Pickett, Baker Mayfield in our quarterback room. Even if Baker Mayfield wins the job and starts, are you really that nervous about how Baker is going to do? If you're the Browns, it doesn't matter to you. You have Deshaun Watson. You feel confident that whether it's in Pittsburgh or whether they come to your place in the dog pound, you're going to beat them. You got the better end of the deal right now. You got the better quarterback. So let Baker do what he wants. Let him go where he wants to go. 
and just stop trying to, at this point, get the best deal you can. Because honestly, what are the Browns holding out for? Like realistically, they're not getting any sort of legitimate compensation back. Now, to be fair to the Browns, they do have a good commodity. Baker Mayfield's a good quarterback. He's not bad. He's not Sam Darnold. He's not Josh Rosen. He is a good quarterback who, again, let's not forget, led the Browns to the playoffs for the first time since 2002 and won a playoff game in Cleveland for the first time since 1994. He has had more success than most quarterbacks that are starting the NFL right now. Baker Mayfield's not bad. So I get it in one sense, if you're the Browns, you want to get something back from him because this is not a guy that's just, you know, you're going to throw on the scrap heap. He's a, a good player. But the reality is with the way the quarterback situation is shaking down, with his salary is what it is right now, no one wants to touch Baker Mayfield. So even if you trade him, you are getting pennies on the dollar back in a Baker trade right now, and you're going to have to eat most of, if not all of the money anyway. Like literally, no hyperbole, no joke here. No team is interested in Baker Mayfield at $18.8 million, which is what his fifth option salary is for 2022. The Panthers were the closest team. The Panthers were the team most interested in Baker. They said no because they don't want to take on Baker's $18 million salary. Now, whether the Browns didn't want to eat all of it or whether the Panthers were not willing to give any sort of draft compensation that was worth giving Baker away, that trade fell through and instead the Panthers traded up into the third round to draft Matt Corral. Well, now you got to assume, well, because you drafted a quarterback, because you traded up to draft a quarterback, and you didn't want to take Baker Mayfield on because of salary, the Panthers are out. I think the Seahawks are, are set on rolling with Drew Locke. We can keep on pointing to them as a destination. Baker Mayfield, in a podcast he went on with, with Mike Studd last month, was saying the, the Seahawks are the most likely landing spot. I think Pete Carroll loves Drew Locke. I think they're going to roll with Drew Locke as a starter. So I don't think really Seattle's interested in adding a quarterback right now. The Falcons, the Titans, the Steelers, all added quarterbacks in the draft. There's no landing spot for Baker Mayfield right now, especially at his $18.8 million salary. The Browns are not getting anything back in a trade. So stop trying to squeeze blood from a rock. Just cut them loose, get the headache out of the way, and move on and focus on your life with Deshaun Watson. You signed Jacoby Brissett, so he's going to be the starter if and when Deshaun Watson is suspended this year. So you don't need Baker Mayfield to stick around and be your starter, nor do I think Baker Mayfield would want to do that. Cut Baker, let him go where he's going to go. He's 99% going to be a backup somewhere for most of, if not all of the season. And let him just go. Focus on your new life with your new top five quarterback. That for me is what's best for Cleveland. I get you don't want to eat $18 $18 million and pay a quarterback $18 million that's not going to be on the roster. I guess that's a big cap hit. I think it's the only option for Cleveland right now. You're not going to trade Baker Mayfield and have a team take on his full salary. And you're not going to trade Baker Mayfield and get a second round pickback that he's probably deserving of. Baker Mayfield, all things equal, should be traded for a second round pick. He's talented. He's good enough for that. But the way the quarterback situation is shaken out, the way teams who are in need of a quarterback addressed it either with a cheap free agent or in the draft, there's no team that's trading any sort of draft capital for Baker Mayfield and paying him that $18.8 million. You're going to get none, I don't think, uh, team taking on his full salary or getting any sort of draft capital that's legitimate. So just move on. Cut Baker Mayfield if you're the Browns. Let him go elsewhere and focus on your new life with Deshaun Watson. If you're the 49ers, I think the opposite should be the case here. 
You keep Jimmy G. You don't cut him. You don't try to force a trade or get less value back than you hope for. I think the 49ers should be absolutely content with keeping Jimmy G on the team for 2022. Like, if no trade materializes, and I don't really see a trade coming down the pike anytime soon, keeping Jimmy G as a backup, keeping him in San Francisco for this 2022 season, I think it's the best move. Trey Lance is going to be the starter. You don't you don't keep Jimmy G and make him the starter. Trey Lance is going to start, have a mentor Trey Lance, and have Jimmy G be the best backup in the NFL. That's what he would be. And for, you know, Jimmy G, you could argue... It's one of the best plans for your career. Where's he going? Honestly, sit back. Tell me a team right now that he is going to get traded to and be the starter week number one. He's not going anywhere to be a starter. So if you're the if you're John Lynch, the GM, I'm not saying don't take any phone calls. Sure, if a trade materializes, great. Do it. If the Panthers wake up tomorrow and Matt Rule says, oh man, I got Sam Darnold, he stinks. Matt Corral's a year away. I know I traded a third-round pick to the Patriots to move up to draft Matt Corral, but you know what? I got to win now. Jimmy G's the best option. I know we didn't want to pay $18 million for Baker Mayfield, but I'm going to pay $27 million for Jimmy G. And all of a sudden, John Lynch gets a phone call from Matt Rule saying, hey, we'll give you a third-round pick or fourth-round pick for Jimmy G. Okay, fine, you do it. If a trade materializes, then sure, go for it. If, it's, if a quarterback gets hurt in training camp and all of a sudden a team is in, the bind, uh, in a bind and they call you for Jimmy G., Trade them. But if no trade comes about, if no teams are interested in Jimmy G, no reason to cut him. You keep him. You absolutely keep him. Now, I don't think a trade is coming down because, again, we just talked about how no team wants to trade for Baker Mayfield and his $18 million salary. Jimmy G is getting 27 mil this year. 27 mil. So if no team's trading for Baker at 18 mil, I don't think there's a shot in hell that a team is trading for Jimmy G at 27 mil for this season. But the reason why you don't cut him, the reason why you keep him and have a mentor Trey Lance to be a backup is because unlike Cleveland and Baker, there's not a fractured relationship between Jimmy G and the team. I think it's toxic. I think it only does the Browns more harm than good to keep Baker Mayfield on the team, even though he's not at the facility. It's just more of a distraction by keeping him on the team because every day people are questioning and wondering, oh, wow, what's Baker going to do? Deshaun Watson could be suspended. Should they bring Baker back? Those questions and that discussion is nonsense. You're not bringing Baker Mayfield back. There's no chance in hell he's returning to the team or wanting to play for the Browns. Just cut your losses, move on. But for the 49ers, there is no contention there, at least on the surface, between Jimmy G and the 49ers. I do think he'd be fine with sitting there with Trey Lance. Maybe not the happiest person in the world that, hey, the guy that, you know, he now um, in Trey Lance is starting over him. I'm sure he's not going to be the, the most happy that Trey Lance is taking his role a year later. But you're looking for Jimmy G. If you want to start, and in this beginning of this offseason, if you remember, he had his closing press conference. He was asked about his future. It was we thought at the time, when the season ended, it was a foregone conclusion he'd be traded. He said he wants to be with a winning organization this year. That was his goal. He wants to go somewhere where he can compete for the job and compete to make the playoffs. Well, if you're Jimmy G, you see the landscape right now of the quarterback situation in the NFL. There's no landing spot for you. There's no even starting spot for you. Again, the, the closest team you could point to and say he could go there and start is the Seahawks. The 49ers are not trading Jimmy G in division. And again... I think uh, P. Kyle is smitten with Drew Locke. I think he loves Drew Locke. 
and he envisions winning 10 games with Drew Locke. So I don't think even Pete Carroll has any interest in trading for Jimmy G. There's no team that has their eye on the playoffs that's trading for Jimmy G. There's no bad team that's even right now going to trade for Jimmy G. So anywhere he goes, again, barring an unforeseen injury, because it's hard to predict those and they are very rare, outside of Teddy Bridgewater blowing out his knee, unfortunately, in a freak training camp accident, there's not many times where a starting quarterback gets hurt in the preseason. Barring an extremely rare, uh, extremely rare occurrence, there's no marker for Jimmy G. There's nowhere he's going to start. So if you're Jimmy Garoppolo, I think it behooves you to stay in San Francisco, stay within the system that you know, and take a gamble that Trey Lance either gets hurt or, or, or struggles as inefficient. You're not rooting for that. But if he does struggle, this is a Super Bowl caliber roster. I do wonder if John uh, John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan would pull the plug on Trey Lance and go back to Jimmy G. And if he gets hurt, obviously, then Jimmy G is going to play. But if you're Jimmy Garoppolo right now, your best option, I think, is staying in San Francisco. You know the system. There's nowhere else you're going to go that's going to be a starter. There's nowhere else you're going to go that you're going to play and compete for a Super Bowl. So stay where you are. This is your last year of your deal. And see what free agency looks like next year. But if you're looking at it from a team perspective, which I want to look at it from this prism, right? We, we have talked about it. What's best for Jimmy G from his perspective? What's best for Baker Mayfield from, there, from his perspective? I look at this from the team perspective. What is best for the team? What should the team do? How should they handle their quarterback situation going forward? Because neither, I bet you, the 49ers nor the Browns thought on May 5th they would still have those two quarterbacks respectively on their rosters. If you're the Browns, I think the solution is simple. You cut Baker Mayfield. Cut your losses, move on, and start worrying about your life with Deshaun Watson. If you're the 49ers, I think you keep Jimmy G. Keep him on the roster. If a trade materializes later on in the offseason or in training camp, okay, fine, make the trade. But I think it makes sense for you to keep Jimmy G on the roster. Don't cut him. Have him be the backup. Have him mentor Trey Lance. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Are you with me? Should the Bakers cut Baker Mayfield? Oh, should the Baker... Should the Browns, let's try that again, cut Baker Mayfield? Or do you think they should hold out and trade him for uh, as much as they possibly can, whether that's in training camp or hell, whether that's in season? Maybe if a team panics, uh, whether their quarterback gets hurt or struggles, should they keep Baker Mayfield in the hopes of eventually cashing in big time in a trade? Or should, uh, should they cut him right now for the 49ers? What should they do with Jimmy G? Should the 49ers hold on to their $27 million quarterback and have him be a backup? Or should they trade him as well? Love to get your thoughts. Facebook Worldwide Sports Ray Network. That's where you can find us. You can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. And on YouTube, we're there. Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, the Tennessee Titans, this time last week, made a very shocking trade in moving A.J. Brown to the Eagles. Is it time for them to tear it down? Should they hit the reset button and enter... A rebuild. We'll discuss when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Mm-hmm. 
Ryan Hickey here with you. Hour number two of the program going till 11 a.m. Eastern. Where else on this Thursday morning? Happy Cinco de Mayo. Hopefully with us a nice frozen marg, a nice chips and guac, some nice quesadillas or burritos. Hopefully you are celebrating uh, rightfully today at some point with some good, delicious food and drinks. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Hopefully, again, your day is a, a, a good one here. And we appreciate you starting your Thursday morning thus right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So last Thursday, a week ago today, I think the Tennessee Titans signaled the direction of where they should go for 2022 and beyond. That's tearing it down. I think the Tennessee Titans should enter a rebuild. Trade Derrick Henry and now devote all your resources, devote your energy to developing Malik Willis to try to overtake Ryan Tannehill and lead this team in a a new era. This should be the start of turning your offense from running back centric, centered around Derrick Henry, to quarterback centric. Whether that's Malik Willis or whether that's another quarterback down the road. I think trading Derrick Henry this offseason again the most you can is the answer. Still start Ryan Tannehill this year. You need Malik Willis. You got to give him time to develop. He's, you know, one of the biggest things about him and one of the biggest reasons why he dropped from potential first-round pick to third-round pick is the time needed for him to uh, to develop. So I would not rush him. I would not throw him into the fire right away. Have Ryan Tannehill play this year. But develop and put all your energy and resources into trying to have Malik Willis lead this team and be the focal point of the offense, not a running back in Derrick Henry. Because look at the Titans, right? Before before they traded A.J. Brown, literally this time last week, because A.J. Brown was still a member of the Titans, this time next week, or last week, 10 a.m. on draft day. The Titans were a team that were stuck in the middle. I get they got the number one seed last year, but they are a, not a team that's good enough to win a Super Bowl. There's no doubt about that. Titans are not good enough to win a Super Bowl, but they're nowhere near bad enough to tank, right? They are stuck in the middle, which is the worst spot to be in sports. And their trade of uh, A.J. Brown, moving on from a 24-year-old receiver and not wanting to pay him $25 million a year, despite the fact it is Super Bowl or bust for the Titans. When you have Derrick Henry as your focal point on offense, when you have Ryan Tannehill a little bit older uh, in the NFL, you know, not that he's very good anyway, but you don't have a ton of time left with Ryan Tannehill uh, to begin with. When you trade away A.J. Brown, you are waving the white flag on chasing a Super Bowl. You are signaling to the other 31 teams in the NFL, we're done. This group we have, this core is not working. We're entering a rebuild. And we got to reset things because the way this offense has been built is not good enough to get us over the top. I know it's a receiver. I know, again, the offense is built around Derrick Henry, not A.J. Brown. But the trade of the 24-year-old receiver completely shuts the Super Bowl window. And for the betterment of the organization, for them to truly try to get over the hump and win a Super Bowl, the best way to do so is rebuild. We'll say retool. Not go into the tank like the Texans did, but I think you could retool. Two or three year plan, trade Derrick Henry, run Ryan Tannehill into the ground, develop Malik Willis, and hope Malik Willis can come in there and play well. Rebuild, I think, is the best option for the Titans instead of chasing ghosts. That's what they would be doing. Chasing the ghost of them being good enough to make a Super Bowl, which they are nowhere near close to. 
Because look, look, let's look at this roster. Today, no A.J. Brown, Derrick Henry, Ryan Tannehill. Defense is what it is. This roster, forget Super Bowl caliber, which it's not. This roster is not even playoff caliber. This is not a playoff team as we sit here on May 5th of 2022. We'll get into their roster in a second here, but look around the rest of the AFC. It was a total arms race this offseason, right? The Broncos got Russell Wilson. Great quarterback. They are Super Bowl contenders. The Browns get a top five quarterback in Sean Watson. They are now in the Super Bowl picture. The Raiders, they bolster their team by adding Devonta Adams, the best receiver uh, in the NFL. The Colts got better in their own division in getting Matt Ryan a more consistent and competent professional quarterback than Carson Wentz was. The Bengals addressed weaknesses. The Bills added to their defensive line. The Chargers loaded up in different areas as well. It was an arms race this offseason in the AFC, and a lot of teams that are already good got better, and a lot of teams that were in the middle put themselves over the top to be in the playoff and or Super Bowl discussion. Then we take our attention away from the Broncos, away from the Browns, away from the Colts and the Bengals and the Bills and the Chargers and the Raiders. We look at look at now this Tennessee Titans team. They're not on the same level as any of those teams I just listed. If we're talking about best case scenario, things go well for the Titans. I think they're the eighth best team in the AFC. I don't think they're winning this division. I think the Colts are better. Again, all the other teams I listed, the Broncos, the Browns, the Bengals, the Bills, the Chargers, I think they're better than than the Titans. So we're talking about best case scenario here. The Titans either getting that seventh and final wild card spot or being on the outside looking into the playoffs. So why would you run this roster back? Why would you bring an aging running back back when this team and the way they're built and constructed is nowhere near the elites of the conference. So for me, trading Derrick Henry is the best move. Getting the most you can back for him right now, which is his value will never be higher. It's still not high uh, or as high as it could have been last year before he got hurt. But his value is only going to depreciate and go down as he gets older, as he gets more mileage on those tires. And the Titans truly need to transition away from the running back being the heart and soul of their offense and now focus again on making it the quarterback, making this offense quarterback centric. We know trying to build an offense in this day and age around a workhorse running back is not exactly the smartest move, especially when that workhorse running back is getting older and is getting more worn down. Call it just a coincidence. Call it just bad luck. Derrick Henry last year missed nine games with a foot injury. Last time I checked, running back shelf life is not long to begin with. I get what you could say. Oh, it's Derrick Henry. He's different. He's a freak. He's a freak in nature. Bigger, faster, stronger than most running backs in the NFL. But that is a toll he has taken on his body. When you look at the workload he's had the last few years, you are now just, just playing with fire. That you think a running back can last now 17 games in the regular season and then play even better in the postseason. I get he did it in 2019. 2019 is three years ago. He only has more mileage on those tires. Derrick Henry, two out of the last three years, led the NFL in carries. This past year, I just mentioned, he missed nine games this year at the foot injury. Despite the fact that he only played in eight games this year in the regular season, 
Derrick Henry finished 10th in the NFL in carries. He was top 10 in carries despite playing literally less than half the season. The Titans have run him into the ground. And now at 28 years old, coming off of an injury, coming off of a, a workload the last three years, where two of the last three he was led the league in carries, and this past year, even though he missed half the year, still top 10 in carries. He has a lot of wear and tear on his body. And I don't think it's sustainable to ask Derrick Henry to carry the offense the way he's been asked to the last three, four years. So if you're the Titans, again, where you were not in the elite class of the AFC, where your offense is built on a running back, which again, playing the odds, which I am, that it's not sustainable, that's not how you win games, and running backs quicker more than any other position, age. Get hurt, fall off a cliff. So would you rather run Derrick Henry into the ground the next two years, run him through his contract, hoping, hoping to win the division and make the playoffs? Or would you rather say, screw hope, we are taking control of our future, trade Derrick Henry, develop Malik Willis, and turn this offense from running back centric to quarterback centric? Trade your most valuable asset, get draft picks back, maybe get a player back, and start to build this roster uh, in a way that can actually compete with teams like the Broncos, with teams like the Chiefs, teams like the Browns. Because I don't think the Titans can. Forget about just being running back centric. We know for a fact Ryan Tannehill has a very low ceiling. He can't play well when asked to, in the, especially in the playoffs. Look, I know he won two playoff games in 2019. Look at Ryan Tannehill's stats in those postseason games. He completed less than 10 passes in each. They didn't ask him to throw the ball. They didn't want him throwing the ball. Even when the Titans won games, it was in spite of Ryan Tannehill, not because of. So Ryan Tannehill in the postseason is garbage. He can't play well in the postseason. He can't carry this offense. And even though I know what you're going to say, Ryan, they went 6-3 and three without Derrick Henry this year in the nine games he missed. I get it. Look at the schedule. The Rams was a very impressive win the first game. Other than that, and the reason why they won that game, by the way, is not because Ryan Tannehill, because Matthew Stafford threw two awful picks, one for pick six and another one deep in his own end. So that schedule, that week's schedule is the biggest reason why the Titans went 6-3, and three, not because Ryan Tannehill. You can't trust him. You can now, if you are looking at the other teams who's going to play in the Bills and the Browns and the Broncos and the Chiefs, you're not beating these teams. So, right now, you need an upgraded quarterback. And you take Malik Willis, and that, to me, waves the white flag. That signals, you know what? We traded A.J. Brown, who Ryan Tannehill, if you want to you know, have him have a chance of having postseason success, you do so by having, him, uh, having legit weapons to throw the ball to. Trading away A.J. Brown only signals... This team's not interested in, in, in going for a Super Bowl. And Mike Vrabel, John Robinson both know this is not a Super Bowl caliber roster. So you play Ryan Tano this year. You develop Malik Willis. I don't care what Ryan Tano said about, you know, um, mentoring Malik Willis. I think for me, he messed up just by saying it publicly. I don't care if he does or not. Like, I don't think he's going to throw the cold shoulder to Malik Willis. I know that quote that went around. Uh, actually, no, I'll play it for you in case you missed it. This is Ryan Tannehill. He was asked, are you going to mentor Malik Willis and kind of help him out being a rookie quarterback? This is Ryan Tannehill's answer. 
in a quarterback room in the same room. You know, we're we're competing against each other. We're uh, you know watching the same tape. We're, we're doing the same drills. Uh, I don't think it's my job to mentor him, but uh, you know, if he learns learns from me along the way, then uh, then that's a great thing. Okay, so Ryan Tannehill is not going to mentor him. He's obviously upset, and I can't fault him a little bit. Uh, for the Titans drafting a quarterback. The reality is Ryan Tannehill is not going to give Malik Willis a cold shoulder. Uh, so if Malik Willis has questions, he's going to mentor him, yes. I just wouldn't, if I'm Ryan Tannehill, I wouldn't have said that. I would have said, I'm here to help him. Whatever question you have, I'll, I'll answer him and just move on. Whether they do or not, no one's going to really know. But just don't say the, the quiet part out loud. But anyway, the point is, Ryan Tannehill is clearly frustrated that he took a quarterback. He's clearly distracted that right now he has more competition in the quarterback room. And the Titans have tr- truly showed you, you know what? Maybe it is start, you know, time to start thinking about the future. Because if, if they were focused on the Super Bowl right now and trying to go all in to win, they would have extended A.J. Brown, not traded him, and they wouldn't have wasted a pick on a developmental quarterback that realistically won't help them until three years from now. Malik Willis should absolutely sit this season, not play a game. Next year, who knows, it could be rough. So really, he won't be able to contribute and be a difference maker on this team for, let's say, three years. They used a third-round pick on him. So you traded away your best receiver, who's 24 years old, and you took a developmental quarterback early in the third round. And that shows you the Titans right now, their priorities are not winning the Super Bowl. It is already having one eye in the future, which I think is the right move, by the way. Again, I told you, they're stuck in the middle. This is a team that's not winning a Super Bowl with their current uh, roster as constructed before they traded A.J. Brown. Ryan Tannehill's not a Super Bowl winning quarterback. Derek Henry kind of building your offense around a running back, I don't think is wise or smart or, or, or the way to do it in 2022. So the Titans are already having one eye in the future. So why not just go all in? Why not pull the cord and say, you know what? We traded A.J. Brown. Let's move on from Derrick Henry too. Play Ryan Tannehill. Develop Malik Willis. And get as much as you can back from still what is one of the best running backs in the NFL. Derrick Henry is healthy. He's still unstoppable. I'd put him still excuse me, ahead of Jonathan Taylor. So some team will be interested in Derrick Henry. Some contender We'll be interested in Derrick Henry. Go for it. Trade him. The Titans should absolutely enter a rebuild. With no A.J. Brown, this passing offense was cooked and the offense was in big trouble anyway. Now just go all in for it. Embrace it. Retool. And in three years, hope you hit on some of the draft picks you get and you can build this offense into being a sustainable winner. The last thing I'll say, because I know the argument you can make, well, Ryan, the Titans were the, not the only court, uh, not the only team to trade their star wide receiver. Look at the Chiefs. Look at the Packers. They traded better receivers than AJ Brown. Why aren't you telling them to rebuild? Very simple. Those teams are different than the Titans. The Chiefs trading Tyreek Hill, the Packers trading Devonta Adams is way, way different than the Titans trading AJ Brown. The Chiefs have Patrick Mahomes. The Packers have Aaron Rodgers. Now I'll say this. I'm not, I don't think the, the Packers are Super Bowl contenders this year. I don't. I think the Rams are clearly better. I think the Buccaneers are clearly better. I think one of those two teams, I'm picking the Rams, but them or the Buccaneers are going to the Super Bowl from the NFC. I'm not putting the Packers in that conversation. With that said, though, the Packers still have Aaron Rodgers. They're still going to win double-digit games, and they're still going to be in the conversation. The Chiefs have Patrick Mahomes. Those quarterbacks can make up for lesser talent around them. Aaron Rodgers can make whatever receivers they have around him better. Patrick Mahomes can make whatever receivers he has around him better. You can't say that about Ryan Tannehill. So you can take a, a four-string receiver, 
plug him with Patrick Holmes and have success. You can take Christian Watson, a developmental wide receiver out of North Dakota State. You could take him in the second round. You could throw him into the fire and try to have him sort of be basically your number one wide receiver. That's what he's going to be. And you can have success immediately. You look at Ryan Tannehill, whether it's Nicholas Westbrook Aquina, whether it's Robert Woods, Ryan Tannehill's not making those those receivers any better than they already are. Ryan Tannehill is not elevating the team around him. It's vice versa. He needs a team around him to elevate him. So losing a wideout is, even though he's a, a lesser player, right? AJ Brown is not as good as Devontae Adams. He's not as good as Tyree Kill. So even though he's a lesser receiver, it has a bigger impact on the Titans because Ryan Tannehill cannot elevate this team. So it is a way, way bigger loss for Tennessee losing A.J. Brown than the Packers losing Devontae Adams and the Chiefs losing Tyreek Hill because those two quarterbacks in Kansas City and Green Bay can make up for the loss and make uh, receivers around them better. Ryan Tannehill absolutely cannot do that. He needed A.J. Brown to make him better and now losing A.J. Brown, Ryan Tannehill is making no one around him better. So that's why for me, it's different for the Titans trading their number one wide receiver than it is for the Packers or the Chiefs trading their top weapon. So the Titans, to me, showed you they're not committed to winning a Super Bowl. They acknowledged this core as currently constructed is not good enough to get us over the top. The AFC got even better than we anticipated this year. We're not going to get the number one seed again. We're not going to win 12 games again. So might as well, instead of being stuck and just kind of hoping we are going to take our future into our own hands and trade away A.J. Brown and start a rebuild. I think that's the right thing to do. The Titans should absolutely enter a rebuild, and that starts with trading Derrick Henry this offseason. How about you? Do you agree? Should the Titans enter a rebuild? Should the Titans trade Derrick Henry away this offseason and start excuse me, to build their offense in the eyes of a quarterback, whether that's Malik Willis, whether that's another quarterback they like next year, whether that's trading for a disgruntled quarterback like, I don't know, Lamar Jackson or Kyler Murray. Is it time for the Titans to hit the reset button and trade Derrick Henry? Love to hear your thoughts here. Facebook Worldwide Sports Right Network. Tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show and watch us on YouTube Worldwide Sports Right Network. Also, also, we have a brand new user to TikTok. Check out the Ryan Hickey Show on TikTok. The handle, Ryan Hickey Show. Going to be more active on the talk. Maybe do some dances. Maybe do some of the trends and the audios that uh, that the kids are doing these days. Makes The audios shows you how old I am. But we are on TikTok now. It's been a fun platform to do. We just joined the other day. So make sure if you're on the talk, check me out, Ryan Hickey Show. When we return... There's a lot of news in college football here. Jordan Addison, the best receiver in college football, has entered the transfer portal, and it has caused a frenzy. I normally don't like this approach, but I'm, I think this is the wisest and the best. We all need to calm down. Everyone needs to take a deep breath, and the best way right now for NIL to sort itself out? Patience. I'll discuss why when we return us to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. <laughs> Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. 
And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. I want to get into the Jordan Addison entrance to the transfer portal and, and kind of NIL if it's out of control. I want to get to that in one second here, but it's funny this song came on. Industry Baby, you have Lil Nas X and Jack Harlow. Jack Harlow's been in the news this week. If you haven't seen it, on Sunday of game one between the Celtics and the Bucks, he was there. He was courtside. And ABC had a phone or ESPN had a funny clip. One of the referees, Scott Foster, was on the court. And as they're introducing some of the uh, celebrities at Celebrity Row there at TD Garden in Boston, one of them was Jack Harlow. And Scott Foster, an older gentleman, 60s probably, goes, who the hell is Jack Harlow? And that went viral. And that was very funny because he was just kind of questioning and kind of like asking what kind of celebrity, like who is this guy? Now, I will say, full disclosure, <laughs> I have heard the name Jack Harlow a million times. I know who he, like, I know the name, I know the face. I'll be honest, up until Sunday, I did not know he was an actor, or uh, an actor, here I see, here I go, I did not know he's a rapper, I knew maybe some sort of singing, I wasn't sure if he was a singer slash actor, I wasn't sure if he was just like a, a fashion designer, or just someone famous, like that's the thing, people now are famous for just random things, I wasn't sure if he was just famous, just, I don't know, he's famous, I'll be honest, hand up, I am with Scott Foster here, I knew Jack Harlow the name, I didn't exactly know the reason why he was famous. I actually didn't even know he sang in this song um, until Sunday. Love this song. I play it all the time. And I'll be honest, that kind of shows you where I am, how outdated I am, and how ignorant I could be at times where no one and liking a song and not even knowing who sings. So myself and Scott Farce, I'll own up to, <laughs> to it. It shows you sometimes how cultured or lack thereof I can be. My man, Jack Harlow is... Big news, big news this week for some people, well, myself here, including myself, not exactly knowing who Jack Harlow is and what exactly he does, but he's a rapper, he's very good at it, that song, Industry Baby, is a total banger. But welcome back in, it's Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Network. I do want to hit on some college sports, because, now I'll be honest, for me, I'm not exactly the most patient person in the world, and really no one is, right? Now we want everything immediate. If my phone doesn't load a picture or video in two seconds, what are we doing? We're refreshing it. We're exiting it out and we're clicking back in. We want things here and now. I don't want to wait on hold for 10 minutes. I don't have to wait a day or two for something to ship. We all want it now instantaneously. So patience truly is a virtue, but patience is also gone by the wayside. When it comes though to name, image, and likeness in college sports though, I do think here it's extremely hard to say and even harder to practice. I get it. We all need to exercise patience when it comes to NIL. It's the Wild West right now. I get it, right? Money's being thrown all around. Kids are entering the transfer portal left and right. Kids are now, I don't want to use this word, but there's really no other way to describe it. Kids are now trying to hold schools hostage in terms of trying to get the most money possible and threatening transferring if they don't get a better NIL deal. I get right now it's just total, total chaos. But if we exercise patience, and this is going to be a long patient process, if we exercise patience for, I think, two to three years, let things play out, let things run its course, let some players cash in big time, let others bust out and have investors make big mistakes, I think time is going to heal NAL here and almost serve as a market correction. We need to exercise patience, let things run its course for two or three years, and the market will adjust. 
Now this week, the reason why NAL is back in the news and, and the reason why it's such a big topic is because Jordan Addison, the standout pit receiver, Belitnikoff Award winner as the greatest uh, or the best, I should say, receiver in college football this past year. He had 100 catches, almost 1,600 yards, 17 touchdowns. He entered the transfer portal this week. And the thought behind it is, is that he wants more NAL money. Now, he says it's, you know, in order to put him in the best position to be the best draft uh, draft prospect he can this time next year. But what's really setting the college sports uh, fan into a, a blaze here, I guess, if you will, is that there is believed to be tampering by USC. Jordan Addison is from the Washington, D.C. area. That's where he went to high school. Well, so did USC quarterback Caleb Williams. Mike Caleb Williams, as we know, one of the most polarizing and well-known players. He was out of Oklahoma last year. Lincoln Riley leaves. And Caleb Williams follows him to Southern California. But now, USC has been extremely active in the transfer portal, getting kids coming from all over the place. They want to play with Lincoln. They want to play with Caleb. And now, Jordan Addison could be the latest one uh, to join Caleb Williams in in Southern California. Look, this is going to be the future. This is going to now be what college sports is like. It's going to be the NBA offseason. I hate to say because I don't partially like it. I think it's unfair to colleges. I think it's unfair to coaches, especially. I know you know that's a loaded question. I get there's a lot that was unfair to the players, so I'm not against player empowerment. I'm not. It's just the reality. Tampering is going to happen. Just like tampering happens in the NBA, where all of a sudden free agency starts and three players decide, I'm forcing trades out and I'm going to go play with this guy here and here. We saw all of a sudden Kawhi Leonard goes, oh, I'm going to, I'm not signing with the Clippers until what? Paul George is there. Well, Paul George is under contract with the Thunder. Guess what? Paul George got his way out of Oklahoma City and got to LA very quickly. Tampering happens because everyone in the NBA is friends. And as soon as you want to play with someone, doesn't matter what your contract is, doesn't matter what your team says, you are uh, most likely going to play with them. And tampering is going to happen in college sports, especially college football, and the transfer portal because everyone is friends. Everyone plays seven on seven against each other. Everyone, you know, plays high school football against each other. So we're going to see more cases like Jordan Addison where he has a tremendous year. He goes through spring ball. All of a sudden, Caleb Williams is in his ear. Hey, man, look, we're both in the same area. Look what I got cooking out here at West. Come here. Your quarterback, Kenny Pickett, just got drafted. Come play at USC. We'll get you ready for uh, the pros and also maybe we'll win a national title. I really hate it because I don't like the tampering, personally. And I think it's a little unfair to schools and coaches. But this is what college football and college basketball are going to be. There's going to be a lot of tampering going on. There's going to be a lot of kind of behind closed doors deals. There's going to be a lot of players recruiting other players to come play with them. That's just the reality. That part's not changing. There's a deadline. May 1st is the latest you can be uh, be put into the transfer portal uh, and be eligible for a free transfer to play next year. The only solution is maybe pushing that date up uh, April 1st, March 1st, in order to curb some kids transferring this late in the process like Jordan Addison potentially is. He's in the transfer portal. He's, he's not leaving Pitt. He could still return. He's weighing his options. But maybe the only thing I could say that could change that is by upping the date and pushing it earlier in the year, then it gives less kids or less flexibility if you want to transfer or not. And maybe curbs uh, tampering a little bit. That part's not changing. But what I do think will change in two to three years from now is NIL. Is have it be- or going from the wild, wild west to the New York uh, Stock Exchange, to the stock market. 
Because guess what? Right now, money's being thrown everywhere, right? But you let things run its course, kids are going to learn. More importantly, boosters and or investors and small business owners are going to learn. Investing your money in an 18-year-old kid, not the wisest investment. Not exactly the best bang for your buck. So while, yes, right now, boosters are, are throwing money left and right. Jimbo Fisher is being accused of you know having a $30 million fund for all his uh, incoming recruits. And that's how he got the literal, according to recruiting rankings, the greatest recruiting class in history. You hear about a Tennessee player who, uh, a five-star quarterback, is getting $8 million in an NIL deal. You see big Big money being thrown around to lure kids to uh, a respective school or not. While it's happening now, while it's out of control now, that's not going to be the norm two or three years from now because guess what? More times than not, these, we'll call them investors, these investors, these boosters, these small business owners that are local, that are, you know, signing these deals with players, they're going to get burned. Look, they're 18-year-old kids, right? Are they the most stable in the world? No. Do they have their mind made up? No. Are they guaranteed to pan out? No. The more people get burned with their money, the less willing they are going to be moving forward to dish it out, and the more cautious they are going to be in giving deals out. Perfect example, Quinn Ewers. Quinn Ewers was the highest quarterback prospect that was supposed to be um, in this year's recruiting class. He actually graduated early from high school and enrolled early at Ohio State. The reason why he enrolled early and basically skipped his senior year of high school was because he was promised a $1 million NIL deal from boosters at Ohio State. She was going to get paid $1 million to go to Ohio State. Do you know where Quinn Ewers is now? One year later? Texas. He graduates early, gets a $1 million from Ohio State, doesn't even make a pass attempt. He's the highest rated quarterback, does not throw a pass in an Ohio State uniform transfers to Texas. Do you really think that an Ohio State booster now is all of a sudden the next quarterback recruit that's hot and going to come to Ohio State is going to be throwing him a million dollars? That's a wasted investment. He was there for four months. He transferred. He got out. That is not an ROI, a return on your investment that people want. Because let's not forget, the reason why boosters businesses are giving NIL deals is for sponsorships, is for a return on their investment. If you're that Ohio State booster who gave Quinn Ewers that one million NIL deal, or, or maybe it was a few, right? A few different businesses that partnered with Quinn Ewers and total is $1 million. Let's just say someone offered him 500K. You market this drink. You market this, right? Well, if you're in Ohio State and he plays well, if Quinn Ewers pans out he becomes, you know, the starting quarterback. He plays well. He leads Ohio State to the national title game, wins the national title, wins the Heisman. Well, Quinn Ewers then is one of the most popular players in all of college football. His brand is massive, and you get a massive return on your investment because anything Quinn Ewers endorses, there's going to be a lot of purchasing power behind, right? People are going to want to be associated with winning. Well, when Quinn Ewers doesn't play, when he transfers right away, no one in Ohio State then cares about Quinn Ewers. Those NIL, those NIL deals he made, especially in the Columbus area, are null and void. They're irrelevant. You lost money. It's over. So, bet, almost betting is essentially what it is because if you treat these kids like stocks, in, in which is kind of what they are. I mean, I hate to just kind of 
degrade players. But if we just look at it from a money perspective, these are stocks that NAL play, uh, people, uh, you know, boosters, investors, whatever, are giving them money. They expect a return on their investment. Someone is not giving uh, Quinn Ewers a million dollars to go to Ohio State and, and expect nothing back. Tennessee, for getting that, the five-star quarterback for, for that's going to Tennessee, that's in high school right now, that's getting $8 million to go play for the Vols. If he transfers, if he stinks, if he doesn't pan out, it's not all good in the neighborhood. Ah, uh, you know, whatever. We got him here. I'm going to throw another $8 million to the next quarterback. No, you're going to learn from that mistake because guess what? The more money you throw around and the less you get back, it's bad investing. People get a lot of money and boosters get a ton of money because they're smart with their money. They don't piss it away. They don't just throw it willy-nilly at random stocks, at random investments, at random areas of, of, of business and just, oh, we get burnt? Okay, we'll be better with it. You throw your money away, you're going to be broke soon. So while right now it's the wild, wild west. So right now we are seeing massive deals for high schools get made. We are seeing kids decide uh, their future and their college based on what NIL deals they can make. Right now it's the wild west. Right now coaches are freaking out. ADs are freaking out. Schools are freaking out. Fans are freaking out. It's not going to be this way. If we exercise patience, if we let the mistakes happen, people are going to learn from them. All of a sudden... Instead of paying a million dollars, let's say a high school senior to come to your school, well, if you're a booster, you're better off spending a million dollars for someone who's already there, who's developing in front of your eyes and playing well. Like if you're, if we could go back in time, for those Ohio State boosters that helped get Quinn Ewers a million dollar NIL deal, do you think they'd rather give Quinn Ewers, who's coming in, hasn't done anything a million dollars, or would you rather give C.J. Stroud? who had a tremendous season last year, returning as a starter, we'd rather give him a million dollars. Who's the better investment? Who's the, I would say, more guaranteed prospect? Because again, it's still college kids and it's still, you know, we've seen Spencer Rattler go from hero to zero real quick. Who is the, the, the wiser, safer investment? It's CJ Stroud. So I think now what we're going to see the trend is more players get rewarded after they play well. More players get paid for what they have done slash going to do rather than what they projected to do coming out of high school or, or being a freshman that hasn't played a lot and still getting massive deals. NAL, it's going to sort itself out and the market is going to correct itself. Let it happen. Let the downs happen. Let the mistakes happen. Let some kids get rich when maybe they don't deserve to get rich coming in, not you know doing anything on the field. It's going to correct itself. We all need to exercise patience. Relax. It's all going to be okay. Right now, it's chaotic. Right now, people are trying to paint college football out to be a disaster. Right now, people are trying to blame NIL and the transfer portal for ruining college sports. It's not. It's change. It's maybe a little bit more, you know, the shakeup is a little bit more than I thought personally. As someone who advocated for all this, and I'm not, I'm not backing down. Transfer portal is perfect. NIL is absolutely where it should be. Let the mistakes happen. It's all going to correct itself. Patience. I promise you, patience. When we return, I do want to discuss the best player in the fourth quarter. Is there a player you trust more in the fourth quarter right now than Chris Paul? 
We get your thoughts when we return. It's the Ryan Aki Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show. Where else but the Worldwide Sports Radio Network? As always, the 10 o'clock hour sponsored by LC Designs. Springtime is here. Charcuterie boards are perk for all occasions, especially those picnics and the park. So make sure you get aesthetically pleasing and delicious charcuterie boards, a two-in-one special made by Lauren Clark. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com, lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. Even though it says LC Designs NYC, she ships nationwide. So coming off last night's game, is there a better player in the fourth quarter than Chris Paul right now in the NBA? My answer is no. There's not a player in the NBA I'd rather have on my team leading me in a close game than Chris Paul. He is the best fourth quarter player in the NBA and now is on display fully last night in game two against the Mavericks. Entering the fourth quarter, Luka Doncic is playing great. It's 89-83 Suns. Six-point lead for Phoenix, but a six-point game going to the fourth quarter. That's anyone's game, right? It's a toss-up. It's the NBA. But Chris Paul left no doubt where this game was going to go, and gave no opportunity for the Mavs to even have a chance. Heading into the fourth, what did he do right out of the start? Chris Paul dominates. Finishes the fourth quarter, 14 points in the fourth quarter alone, goes 6-7 from the field, and most importantly, scores or assists on the first uh, 19 points of the fourth quarter. So he had a hand in the first 19 points of the fourth quarter for the Suns that immediately opened up the deficit uh, for the Mavericks and ended the game right there. This went from a six-point game to blowout in literally the span of five minutes because Chris Paul was doing everything to perfection. He was finding his spots on the floor, going to that patented elbow jumper that he automatically makes in his sleep. Taking Luka, uh, Luka Doncic off the bounce, hitting a three-pointer, setting up his teammates for some open looks. Defensively, getting in the head of Jalen Brunson, causing an offensive foul that, again, fed the momentum and fed the crowd even more. At that point, it was already rocking. Took it to the next level. Chris Paul makes all the winning plays you want on your team and you want a player to make in the fourth quarter in clutch time that, for me, there's no player. Giannis, Jason Tatum, Kevin Durant, LeBron James. We can go down the list. Don Mitchell, like any player in the NBA. There's not a player I want running my offense in the fourth quarter in clutch time more than Chris Paul. And you look at this postseason, right? The, the NBA postseason, there's been a lot of parity. And as we know, these games get tight. You want your best players playing their best in the fourth quarter. That's where a lot of these games are decided. Chris Paul in the fourth quarter of this postseason is averaging 10 points a game in the fourth quarter alone, shooting 64% from the field in the fourth quarter. He has been tremendous. He has always saved his best for the end. And the confidence, the swagger he plays with in the fourth quarter, it's infectious. It bleeds to the rest of the team. That is why these Suns are the best clutch team in the NBA. 
They played in 42 games this season that entered clutch time, which is a five-point game with five minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. So again, a a toss-up where either team can win. The Suns, in 42 games this season in clutch time, are 33-9. 33-9 in clutch time this season, led by Chris Paul. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to get to his spots. He knows how to uh, dissect defenses and take advantage. On the defensive end, he knows how to make those small plays, whether it's a steal, whether it's getting in the way for a charge, whether it's drawing an offensive foul. He knows how to get in the way, be agitating, and, and throw the other team off of their offense. He makes every winning play you want in the fourth quarter. So it's no fluke that the Suns are the best team in the fourth quarter. It's no accident now, yesterday, they turned a six-point lead into a blowout of the Mavs in Game 2 in a span of five minutes. Chris Paul leads the way. The Suns are the deepest team in the NBA. Uh, Devin Booker had a great fourth quarter, overall great game. But the Suns are the deepest team in the NBA. They are, well-rounded-wise, the best team in the NBA, obviously. And there were some bumps on the road, and there were some questions about them in the first round against Phoenix, uh, against New Orleans. There was questions about the health of Devin Booker. Can he be relied upon? Is the Hampshire going to be okay? Can the Suns win in spite of Devin Booker's injury? Will he just come back? He's looked tremendous. 30 points last night. Some big threes late to really kind of bury uh, the Mavs. He's playing with confidence because Chris Paul, Mikael Bridges, Jay Crowder, DeAndre Ayton, Cam Payne, Cam Johnson, all of them carry themselves with confidence because they are being led by their leader, Chris Paul, who knows what the hell he's doing. The, the Suns are winning the title because they are by far the best fourth quarter team, and that's where the games are decided, win or lose. Chris Paul was masterful, and I thought yesterday in game number two was the latest example of why, to me, he is the best fourth quarter player in the NBA. I put a poll out on my Twitter, Ryan Hickey Show, you can vote there. 75% of you agree that Chris Paul is the best player in the fourth quarter. If you go on Instagram, I also have that poll there, 50% of you agree. For me, the answer is yes. There's not a player I want in the NBA right now on my team in the fourth quarter of a close game more than Chris Paul. He's the best fourth quarter player in the NBA. He continues to say the best for last, and we saw it yet again in game number two last night. 14 points, 6-7 shooting, starts the fourth quarter by either scoring or assisting on the first 19 points to take what was a six-point lead for Phoenix and blow the Mavs out and turn this game into a laugher in the span of five minutes. Chris Paul averaging 10 points a game in the fourth quarter, 64% shooting from the field in the fourth quarter. He is clutch. He makes a small plays on offense and defense to win you games. The Suns are winning the title because they, to me, are the best fourth quarter team in the NBA, and they are led by the best fourth quarter player in the NBA, which is Chris Paul. We saw that on full display in game number two last night. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Kishard here on the Worldwide Sports Run. Eric, appreciate everyone tuning in uh, to start your Thursdays, uh, Thursday with us. We'll be back on Monday morning, 9 a.m. to recap all the NBA action over the weekend. But to now and then, make sure you follow me on social media. Still a lot of content being posted between now and Monday. So check us out. Like us on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Run. Eric, also the Ryan Hickey Show page on Facebook is there. Put a lot of content there. On Twitter, Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. A lot of content there. Uh, Instagram, Ryan Hickey Show uh, right there on Instagram as well. And on TikTok, we have just recently joined TikTok. We'll be more active, be posting a lot more videos and be more interactive 
on the talk as well. Ryan Hickey Show is my handle on there. So Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Have a great weekend. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you on Monday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. 